1: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations a lot of these were sponsored by the church
2: what does it mean to say that the christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there um you're always uh being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects
1: welcome to the magnificast a podcast about christianity and leftist politics i'm matt bernico and i'm leading a rent strike against tom nook <laughs> I'm Dean Detloff,
0: and my strike is so successful, I'm not even playing Animal Crossing. Uh, (laughs) This week on the show, we have Lydia Wiley Kellerman, an editor at G's Magazine, the uh, very own G's Magazine, and she's also an extremely cool mom. You'll learn all about it in this episode. Uh, (laughs) We have a really cool relationship with G's, where they publish our tweets and our occasional blog posts. And uh, even more importantly than that, I'm on staff at G's as the civil disobedience section editor, which I've been doing for a few issues now. It's a really amazing team and an amazing publication. Uh, The latest issue of G's is on civil disobedience as a theme, and it's a really incredible issue. Some of our listeners are even published in it. If you don't know anything about G's, you're about to learn a ton. But let me tell you, if you like this podcast, you'll like that magazine.
1: Yeah, for sure. It is the most important magazine that's it. I'll say it. <laughs> That's all I've got. Yeah, it's the most important magazine, just in general, not for Christians, not for the left, just uh, the most important. So uh, get it. Yeah. Uh, money's tight for a lot of folks these days, so just getting it might be hard. But if you can spare it, you should really buy a subscription to G's. It comes out quarterly and it's less than $40, which is, you know, really wild for content you're getting um, it. It doesn't, you know, it factors out to not very much per um, per magazine. And um let's see, let me what else can I say about it? It's beautifully put together, it's beautifully written, it's um extremely thoughtful at every turn. Um one of my favorite parts about G's magazine is that each one has this like little full color like um uh, uh card that comes out of it. Like a, <laughs> I don't know why oh, yeah. I can't think can't think of it, like a card that you'd mail somebody. A postcard. God, I couldn't think of the word <laughs> postcard anyways they're amazing that's my favorite part of the g's magazine um i have them all taped on my wall next to my desk and you could be experiencing this exact same thing just like me if you get a subscription to g's um so you can subscribe at gsmagazine.org, and you can get it all there it's uh great and you should do it immediately right now
0: and you can decorate your house or apartment
1: that's it for not very much money it's it's all possible
0: that's right all right let's turn it over to lydia Thanks, Lydia, for coming on the show. Uh, For people who don't know who you are or what you do, could you introduce yourself and also give us a bit of an elevator pitch for G's for folks who've never heard of it? What is it? What are you doing with it? And what do you do there?
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. G's is a big fan of your podcast, so it's a great delight to get to be with you both today. Um, I am a writer, editor, activist, and mother. Um, I was born and raised in Detroit, and in many ways formed by the community and the city uh, here. My partner and I are raising two boys who are four and seven in the neighborhood where I grew up in southwest Detroit. So we're surrounded by urban gardens and fruit trees and chickens and a, a whole host of wonderful neighbors. My soul joy is writing um that's what i really love to do but i sort of stumbled into this wonderful world of editing Um, and i love the work of getting to gather stories i think that stories are really important they're sort of the the bread for movement and community and so i love all the work that i get to do at um, g's magazine so our elevator pitch for g's is that we are a Quarterly, nonprofit, ad free print magazine about social justice, art and activism for people on the fringes of faith in both Canada and the US.
1: It's a good elevator pitch. Yeah, it's such a beautiful magazine. Um, I love it so much, so I'm glad you're here. Well, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the history of G's and like where it all came from? Um, what are its our, you know its big commitments?
2: Yeah, we were founded in 2005 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, and it was founded by Aiden Enns, who considers himself an, an urban Anabaptist um, and had re- recently left being an editor at Ad Busters magazine. Um, and he wanted to create a space that was countercultural and critical of the institutional church, but also grounded in the Christian faith and the many ways that um, justice work kind of grows out of um, Christianity. And the original tagline, which I still love, is holy mischief in an age of fast faith. Um, and we often describe our um, G's audience as being for the over-churched, out-churched, unchurched, and maybe even the unchurchable. Um, and I think uh, in terms of like what our commitments are as a magazine, I think that our hope is that We're a prophetic and provocative voice to the institutional church and a pastoral presence to those who are laboring at the front lines of social change. Uh, So for our commitments, we oppose all forms of oppression. um, And that means supporting communities that are doing environmental justice and racial justice and gender and sexuality justice and disability justice and worker justice, et cetera, et cetera. And the other two commitments that uh, I think of are, one, that we're committed to being ad-free. So we don't have any ads on our website or emails or any advertisements in the magazine itself. Um, And the second is that we're a print magazine. Um, So we put a little bit of our content from the magazine online, but for the most part, we're really focused on being a print publication. Um, and both of those commitments are a really bad business plan. Um, <laughs> it's sort of you know unclear whether you could whether you can make that work. Uh, but we really the the print piece of it feels really important. Um, I think that a lot of us are not interested in creating more ways for people to be sitting in front of screens, but we wanted to create something physical and tangible and beautiful that people can hold in their hands. And we believe that there's a different experience that comes with that. Um, We want to create something that you can take to the woods and read, or you can read around a dining room table or in a book group, or that you can pass on to a friend um, or leave in some strange place. Right. But there's some sort of um, tangible sacredness of um, having this, print form of art and stories. And so we're not really interested in catching up with the times and trying to figure out how to put that online. Um, and so we're going to we're going to die trying to see if we can make this work.
0: <laughs> but it's definitely worth it. Um, I really like uh, having G's in my hands, definitely more than reading my screen all the time. And uh, I think that it comes through like the love for the medium comes through in the way that an issue is put together. Uh, from start to finish, right? It looks nice. There's lots of really great art in in each issue. Um, Even this last issue that we just read on Disobedience, which we'll talk more about later, uh, we were really happy to see a lot of stuff from Benjamin Wildflower, who's done some art for us and things like that. So um, yeah, it's a really wonderful project. Uh, There's a lot of media in the progressive Christian world, right? Like all kinds of outlets. Um, But G's, I think, is really unique in how it foregrounds activism alongside writing and reflection and this kind of creative vision that you've been talking about. So I like that tagline you just mentioned. Uh, The tagline these days is contemplative cultural resistance. And I wonder how you might plot G's in the world of Christian or religious publishing in general, uh, in that kind of, you know, network or or universe of all kinds of of outlets run by religious folks or for religious folks, etc.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think in a lot of ways, I bet that you both could answer that better. And I'd be so curious to see uh, how you would plot G's. I would guess that you're both uh, you know, better readers than I am. But when I think about that, one of the things that come to mind is sort of thinking about what, Magazines I think of as kindred spirits uh, in in the publishing world, And I realize that most of those that come to mind for me are are not in print anymore. Um, so, in some ways, there's sort of a a cloud of witnesses of magazines if that is a thing. So I think about the the other side, um, the witness, which was an episcopal uh, magazine that my mom was the editor of when I was a kid. I think of motive that was done by the Methodist Church. I think of Conspire. Um, which was put on by the new monastic communities. Um, so those are sort of a sort of a community of other publications I think of. Um, but I do think that there are a few things that separate us um, from magazines like Sojourners or the Christian century. Um, and And one is that I mean, I think that we're more radical, right? That activism, Um, in its many forms, is just a given in all of the work and content. Um, Second, we really are a magazine for people on the fringes of faith, so we're not interested in identifying as a mainline um, church that we explicitly put ourselves in the margins in all of the tensions and messiness that that can bring. Um, Third, we're explicitly anti-capitalist. Um, So that shows up both in our content, um, but also in the fact that we're ad free. Um, So we're always working to reimagine how we do money um, with the magazine. Um, How do we think about local economy and gift economy and alternative economies um, as we're running a magazine um, and always sort of asking those questions. Um, Fourth, one of the things that I love about G's is that we're a pitch-driven magazine. So for a lot of magazines, they think about a topic or a writer and they reach out to sort of who the big names are who could write on those um, topics. But what we do is four times a year, we think about what the issue is that we're gonna be looking at. um, And we put that out to all of our networks and we say, this is what the issue is we wanna do. And here's some of the questions we're holding What are you seeing in your communities and places? What are the questions that you're asking? Um, What's making you laugh? What's making you cry? What's stirring inside of you? And then people send us ideas uh, for stories. And so we get to go through this beautiful collection um, of work that people are proposing and decide what an issue is going to be. And I think because of that, we end up with a magazine that Um, is written by ordinary people doing extraordinary things. So there is a a real sense that the work is coming out of community. Um, It's coming from the ground. Um, It can be a great place for young writers or new writers um, to enter into a writing platform. Um, But I think that 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 shifts how the magazine reads is that it really feels like it's community telling stories to one another.
1: Dang. That is such a good way to put it. Um, that rings so true to me after just reading an article that has a, a cool interview with it in it from Dean and another article from my friend Ibrahim. Um, That's a good way of putting it though. Yeah. It's a community telling stories to itself. I, I like that a lot. <laughs> um, well, uh, this is a podcast largely about Christianity and the left, and we felt like we needed to make um, we felt like we needed to make it because you know so many Christians have a hard time engaging with leftist thinkers and traditions, and like you said, Jesus is way more radical than I don't know any other Christian magazine that I've ever read, um, and it's it's a magazine that's doing been doing what we're trying to do for a really long time. So how do you see these two traditions, you know, Christianity and like the left, broadly speaking, um, interacting? Like, what's it like in the editorial process? How's this all work out for you all?
2: Yeah, Um, in some ways, I think that's a really hard question for me personally, because I've never known the two traditions separately. Um, I was raised by pastors and activists in the Catholic Worker Movement, Um, So I learned the rhythm of the liturgical year by where we were putting our bodies, right? So we spent Mondays in Advent, vigiling outside weapons manufacturers, and we spent Good Fridays walking the streets of Detroit, naming where we saw crucifixion happening today. Um, So faith and politics have always been um, combined for me. Um, And I I think about like, I'll often talk to high school students, and I'll find myself saying like, anybody can work for justice, right? Like, you don't have to be Christian, you don't have to be religious, anybody can do that. But I don't think that you can be a Christian without working for justice, Um, that our faith is political. um, And so they they have to work in connection with each other. Um, But I think Yeah, I mean, when we sort of think of the traditions as separate um, and who's in sort of each of those groups, I think there's a lot of um, hunger on both sides for folks. Um, There are Christians who are hungry for finding ways that faith interacts with the world, for ways that faith lives in the margins. Um, And I think there are leftists who are hungry for spirit and for ways of nourishing our souls. Um, And when that interaction um, happens at that intersection. It's a really beautiful, creative, and powerful space. Uh, When I think about it editorially, um, I think about how a lot of the writings and themes that are really dependent on um, our own lives and relationships. Um, All of us at G's Work part time. Um, partly, that's because uh, we have to, <laughs> because it's not um, super fundable, as uh, as I've said. Um, but also because uh, G's is only a piece of the work that we do. So all of us have our feet on the ground in community and movement in different ways. So between the four of us, we do organizing around affordable housing and water affordability and immigration justice and We do work around local economy and grow gardens and can food and raise chickens and organize neighborhood farmer's markets and do emergency response for undocumented neighbors um, who are picked up and we show up at protests and we raise kids and we live in a Catholic worker house. So all of that shows up in our editorial process. Um, Our communities offer us inspiration um, for the work, but they also hold us accountable which feels really important that we want the magazine to come out of movement and community struggle but also be a gift back upon those communities.
0: Yeah, I think that really shines through. Um it's definitely the reason that I've always felt drawn to G's even before I was like a lefty, a real kind of lefty type <laughs> when I was still a Christian trying to figure out what it means like you were just saying to to think about justice out of that tradition, you know, you can you can see that creative uh interplay really coming through the pages of G's for several many years I guess um, the most recent issue of Gs that we want to talk about uh, centers on ideas and reflections regarding disobedience and Matt and I have both been kind of gushing about it to each other for the last week or so since we've gotten it and uh, it made us curious you know what what gave rise to an issue on this topic I mean I wrote a couple of things for it but I'm not in the editorial room of course uh, and uh, is there anything that you felt like you really learned as an editorial team putting this issue together
2: yeah i I don't know in some ways i would say like i think that the moment called for it um but then again you know i think every historical moment uh calls for uh thinking about civil disobedience and um action i think in some ways uh for us it may have been the energy that came out of the climate justice issue that we had put out in the fall. Um, I think we all came away from that feeling, a lot of grief and sense of urgency around the future of humanity and the earth. Um, And I think we all found ourselves asking what risks do we each need to be making um, and how could each of us be putting more on the line? Um, So I think this issue was in part exploring and and challenging ourselves. Um, I also think there was a way, too, that it really spoke to the, the political moment, especially in the United States, that we're currently putting a, a lot at stake in our editorial or our electoral politics. Um, and while that's important, we also want to be really clear that there are a lot of really crucial ways that we need to be um, creating and resisting right now besides voting. Um, in terms of what we learned um, I think in some ways, I think we learned a, uh, a lot sort of personally about our own editorial power. Um, this is the fourth issue now that we have put out um, as a team in Detroit. Um, and I, when it comes to civil disobedience, there's a lot of ways to look at the issue, right? There's a lot of important arguments on all sides of whether to risk arrest to who risks arrest. Who faces more consequences based on race and class and gender and ability um is it playing a choreographed dance with the police and prisons why do you engage with the prison industrial complex at all do you pay or not pay court fines how does ego of whiteness and maleness come into play and and so there's all these questions that are really important and we could have taken this issue and explored all the different angles and arguments around that Um, but instead, I think we kind of learned to claim a little bit more of our power in it and to say we're, we're throwing down on our editorial voice here that we believe putting our bodies on the lines matter and is necessary. Um, and we want to make sure that we name some of the tensions around that, but we're coming down hard on the importance of that work. Um, so I think, I think some of that was our learning with a little bit about our own editorial voice. Um, I also think that when you create an issue, there's a lot of energy and creativity, but that the real learning happens once it's in the hands of readers. Um, We learn so much once it's received. So in some ways, it doesn't really matter until it's held by community. So the fact that this has just um, come out, you know, into people's mailboxes in the last week or two, I think a lot of that learning is just happening um, now for us and And for all of us in conversations like these and i'm really grateful to sort of see what what comes out of that even more
1: yeah that's cool that's a good way to think about it um there's a really funny article early on in the uh in the issue where um there's like some some uh discourse on the disobedience and and grammar and i really like that that was really funny (laughs) speaking of editorial voice and disobedience that was a great point um (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, apart from that, I guess something else I really liked about this issue is uh, how intergenerational it is. Um, this is like a running theme for a lot of G's issues. Um, you know, it's not just to the here and now, but it's also what happened um, in the past. And that's always really helpful. Um, but I think that this this disobedience issue really emphasizes the the intergenerationalness of it. Um throughout the issue, there are some like small segments of story time where you're um, you're writing for a younger audience explaining um, why Grandpa's in jail. That's the name of like the story. And uh, it's really, man, really beautiful in a really helpful way. I mean, it's it's written maybe for a younger audience or something, but it was helpful for me to understand civil disobedience too. Um, you're just basically explaining some really extremely clear and basic terms of like what civil disobedience is all about um and in terms of your family too right so it's it's a really personal story as, as well so it's it's great in all these different ways so I don't know could you speak a little bit about the the inter- intergenerational vibe of this issue um and like why you find it to be so important
2: yeah um I mean in, in, in a lot of ways civil disobedience is a intergenerational work in my own family um so that story that weaves through is one that I wrote um for my son Isaac who was Five, um, when my dad was repeatedly getting arrested with the Poor People's Campaign in 2008. Um, and we had to figure out, how do we explain to him why my dad was getting arrested? Um, and we've repeatedly talked to him about um, the problems that there are with prisons and with police. And yet here he is watching so many people that he loved directly engage with these systems. Um, so I wanted to figure out a way to explain that. And I think that um, telling the truth to kids is a big part of parenting, and finding ways to do that um, is how we um, help kids fall in love with this world and want to be a part of um, the work of of justice. Um, and I think that in a lot of a lot of times movement spaces are not, Um, always friendly to families and to kids. And we always need to be thinking intentionally about how we create space, both in paper and in space, um, where kids feel honored and part of movement. Um, One of the things that we did uh, right away as the Detroit G's team was create the elder word column Um, So each issue has a space for an elder to speak into the issue, to to bless it, to share wisdom, to help us hold the moment. Um, And we really want to constantly be honoring our elders and their stories and the wisdom and the ways they've been at this work for decades. Um, All of our work needs to be intergenerational, that we need to trust one another and learn from one another and find joy in one another. Um, and in some ways, I think that that is also um, a reminder to each of us um, constantly that this work has been going on for a long time before us, and it's going to be going on for a long time after us.
1: I think it's a really helpful way to, to put all of that. Um, I have a son, he's five. And um, just the other day, uh, some workers in my city were going on strike and we were, he and I were talking about it. And um, he thought it was a really fun story. I mean, you know, it's it strikes have all the theatrics intention of any other good story. So he was like really excited about it. And the first thing he did was like he went outside and told the neighbors that did you know that the McDonald's workers are striking today because their boss is mean. And it was like this amazing moment where like all of a sudden he understands like this thing I'm like completely wrapped up in in the moment. And it's kind of bizarre because like. I don't know sometimes it seems like those stories are too big to tell him or he just like wouldn't quite get it but he got it immediately right there's bad guys i don't know um i don't know I, I know that parenting is part of some of the other writing that you've done do you want to say anything else about that at this time
2: i love writing about it i think that uh parenting has been such an eye-opening experience um of being able to see this world in a new in a new way um, and really learning from my kids. I feel like they become my greatest teachers and also um, who's holding me accountable to the work. Uh, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about um, my, my son Isaac, who's really asking of us things that we're not ready to do. <laughs> um, he, especially in terms of climate change, like, that is huge on his heart, um, and he bikes to school every day, um, with his mama on a, on a bike, it's three and a half miles, but that's, like, such a commitment to him, because, uh, he doesn't, um, want to drive a car, and he understands what pollution means, and, and he is ready to, like, have us give up, driving all together. And, you know, we live in the car capital of the world. So that's kind of an unheard of um, (laughs) concept, but it's not impossible, right? Like it would make my carpooling a lot different. Um, But he's right. And his, his instinct on that is right. And so I think there's so many moments like that where if I listen to him, like one, I'm, and we make a decision based on sort of what his heart is calling us to. Um, it'll change me in lots of really hard and wonderful ways, but it'll also teach him so much, right? Like if he realizes that he can have a commitment and his heart can call him to something and you can change your life around that, like that's going to last with him for the rest of his life. Um, that that you can see injustice and you can shift the way your life is. Um, And from then on, right, he'll know that he has power as a kid. He'll know that, that it's hard work, but it's possible. Um, And so I think all of those questions are just in me all the time of how are we, how are these new, these children sort of now part of our community and part of our work um, and helping us to, to step into a new way, right? The world is shifting and we're going to need to constantly be figuring out new ways of living and being in relationship with the earth. And and these kids in a lot of ways are not going to be addicted to the same ideas that we were raised with. Um, And they can help sort of shepherd us into a a new way. And I'm really grateful for them as um, partners in that. So I end up, loving to spend a lot of time writing about what it means to raise kids right now and and what they're teaching me
0: man uh i can't wait to read your uh, read your parenting book um that sounds great <laughs> it's uh, yeah is that right
2: uh, well i'm working on an anthology with uh, broadleaf books that's uh gonna come out next march that's an anthology written by 15 incredible parents uh that's going to be called the sandbox revolution raising kids for a just world um that touches on a lot of the issues from education to spirituality to anti-racism to patriarchy to resistance all of that so it's been really fun to work on with a really great group of parents
0: thanks that's awesome we'll <laughs> have to have you back for sure, um next march to talk about that, that great. yeah uh Well, coming back to G's a little bit um, more directly, not that we went away from it, I guess, a moment ago, but (laughs) back to this issue, Um, in, uh, you know, activist circles, civil disobedience is is usually a a kind of question of efficacy or strategy, like you were talking about earlier, or um, even symbolism and and spectacle making. But flipping through the pages of this issue in particular, there's also a, a spiritual or religious dimension to it as well that really comes through and is communicated in in some interesting ways. Could you say a little bit about that? Like what is the spiritual or religious dimension involved in something like civil disobedience?
2: Yeah, I think in, in some ways, there's a lot around that question of effectiveness. Um, That's very often talked about when we think about actions of like, is this going to be effective? Um, And I think it was really important for me and part of, my spiritual formation to, um, work really hard to not do an action because it's going to be effective. Right. So, um, I think, you know, the, the magazine touches a little bit about on the film, a hidden life. Um, and I think people are thinking a lot about Franz Jäger's daughter and, um, you know, he made this very small decision not to, not to fight and ended up being killed by the Nazis. And, If you had looked at that moment then, like, that would not have looked like an effective action, right? There was no media. There was no huge community. It was sort of a very small, almost sort of forgotten um, thing. But, like, it ended up playing out in history in really powerful ways. That There are lots of people who made really bold decisions because of reading those letters. Um, So in a way, I think that frees us up to say, like, I'm going to act because my body is telling me that I have to, that I can't not act right now. Um, And sort of freeing, freeing ourselves from that question of effectiveness. Um, I grew up with the words of, you know, Thomas Merton, who wrote the letter to the young activist to to Jim Forrest. And uh, maybe I'll I'll just read a few of those words, because I think um, in some ways that links to the spirituality question. Um, He wrote, do not depend on the hope of results. When you are doing this sort of work, you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. Gradually, you struggle less and less for an idea, and more and more for specific people. The range tends to narrow down, but it gets more real. In the end, it's the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. Um, and I, I love that idea of relationships being at the core of it. Um, I think about how differently it is to show up at a protest when I know friends who've had their water shut off in Detroit um, or to show up at a protest when I know specific neighbors that are um, sitting in an immigration detention center. Um, And if we love our neighbors who are facing injustice, then we can't help but fall into the streets and cry out for justice. Um, And for me, I think that's spiritual. Um, it's also scriptural, right? Like I think there's a way in which you sort of can't read the Bible without landing in jail. Um, so many of the the letters are written from jail. Um, in this issue, we have a a piece that focuses on the midwives Shifra and Pua, who are my favorite. Um, and they commit the first acts of civil disobedience um, in the Bible by refusing to refusing the order to kill babies. Um, and this week in churches, we're remembering Jesus who mocked a military parade by riding a donkey into Jerusalem as a symbol of peace, and then went into a temple and physically turned over the money-changing tables, resisting the ways that economic and religious systems were working together. Um, and then on Good Friday, we remember a man who was executed by the state for speaking truth to power. So how could putting our bodies on the line not be an act of faith? Um, And beyond that, I think that a lot of actions really benefit from deep community building and discernment and prayer, however you name and experience prayer. Um, But when you bring your heart and your prayer and your desire and your body and your life uh, to an act of civil disobedience, it can actually Become church. It can become sacrament. It can become gospel.
1: I think that's good. That's a great way to put it. Um, you you just said a lot about our our bodies and putting them on the line, and uh, I think that's all good. And I'm I'm very much invested in that. Um, though, kind of ironically, I guess (laughs) I got this issue in the mail just as all the social distancing was ramping up. Um, and uh, our bodies are on the line in sort of a different way, but you know, in a very a more six feet apart kind of way um so um yeah i mean there's i guess something a little bit ironic about a magazine that focuses on putting our bodies in the line and, and disobedience during a time when we're hyper focused on on keeping our distance and trying to negotiate um how we manage our body and our lives uh in this sort of new uh, economy of space and labor and how complicated it is Um, so I don't know, what do you think disobedience means in the new context of COVID-19 and this, this terrible sort of situation we're in?
2: Yeah, I know. It feels so ironic. Um, in a lot of ways leading up to it, I felt like, um, especially in the U.S., there was so much political energy in February and March. It felt like it could just sort of explode onto the streets. Um, and then suddenly there's an order that we all have to stay inside of our houses, um, for those of us who who can and have homes, and um I really wonder what does that do to movement? Like, is there a cost right now of not being able to massively mobilize? Um, and I also think that there's a real feeling in many of us of feeling sort of useless right now that it's um, hard for me to come to comprehend how staying inside, with my family is actually a way of loving the most vulnerable um but i also think that there's a real sweetness in this issue arriving right now um disasters have such a way of pulling back the veil um injustice is being exposed um, and systems of power are crumbling um we're seeing the Cost of a for-profit healthcare system in the US. We're seeing just how vulnerable low-wage workers are. Um, you both explore, explored in your last podcast about the mounting worker strikes happening all over um, that things are really becoming exposed. Um, and the economy shut down. I mean, in a matter of days, air travel came to a halt and malls and gyms and movie theaters, they all shut down. Um, and I think there's something really important to be learning in that. Um, And I also think for many of us, that right now we're being forced to slow down um, and we're forced to be still. And those are not necessarily easy things for many of us who are addicted to a fast paced capitalist world. Um, So suddenly we're watching what's being uncovered and we're thinking about how we're gonna respond when we leave our houses again. Um, And that's not a bad time to be reading about disobedience and taking risks. Um, And when this crisis um, passes, there's going to be a lot of work that we all need to to be a part of. And it's going to demand creativity and imagination and community and new ways and old ways. And I think there's some really good words in this issue that we can all ponder on um, as we prepare for that.
0: Yeah, thanks. That's really great. Um, (laughs) I'm thinking a lot about, you know, what are you supposed to learn in a moment like this? And it is hard to sort out, uh, but I really value the way that G's is doing that. Um, Yeah, I want to get to another question that we asked you earlier, but I'm curious now to think more about uh, a previous issue of G's right before this, which was about hospitality. And I guess just maybe I, I wonder if you've been reflecting on some of the things, some of the articles that came out in that issue uh, in light of, you know, now the, the challenge of being hospitable in, in a moment where we are social distancing. Um, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but but I wonder if you have any thoughts about that uh, just off the top of your head or, or now kind of reflecting on hospitality in the midst of all this stuff.
2: Yeah, I was... Um... Thinking a little bit about Jamie Reeves piece in the last uh, uh, issue where she really tried to expand what hospitality means that it doesn't just have to uh, mean welcoming somebody into your house, um, but there's a lot of different ways to do that. And, and she also talked a lot about um, the sort of historical look at the ways that hospitality Um, has had a lot of risk and resistance and um, I think that there are all sorts of ways that we're we are doing hospitality in the midst of this even if it's not in our own homes Um, and I think that there may be more and more ways that we're going to need to ask ourselves um, about what that risk looks like Uh, as this unfolds it's really hard to know what the crisis is going to look like and how it's going to play out and where we're going to be needed but there may be ways that we do need to to go out into the streets and um to take some some pretty serious um risks of ways of um loving people and caring for people as they're sick or dying you know that um I think that's going to have to continue to be a real question for all of us.
0: Yeah, thanks uh, for saying something about that, especially just so off the cuff. Um, it really exhibits the the G's tradition of, I feel like, meeting a, a crisis head on, but also trying to figure out how to actually reflect on that, which I respect a lot. <laughs> it's a, hard for me to do any anyway. The reflecting part is difficult, so I appreciate Um all that kind of uh, work that you guys have done to cultivate that sort of reflex. Um, So speaking a little bit more, though, about some of this stuff, you wrote a really neat blog post on the G's website called Staying Connected Through COVID-19 and uh, reflecting on, on exactly these kinds of, of issues there. And you gave a really amazing expression to the sort of difficulties that I think a lot of us are facing, trying to reflect all this. And um, I'll just read a little bit of it and then ask you a question about it. Um, so you say, social distancing seems so counterintuitive to how I understand living humanly. Right now, I want to smother the elders my life with hugs and back rubs. I want to invite those living alone over for tea. I want to let a bonfire and invite over my neighbors to share food. I want to swap childcare. I want to come out of our doors and fences and bring our bodies together and breathe and cry and scream and laugh and sing. I want to be with the dying. I want to be there to touch death and bury the bodies. I'm supposed to love my 70-year-old father who suffers from multiple health conditions by not being with him. Everything inside my soul is confused. And I think that that was such a a moving passage for me, at least. And and as I shared it around, you know, social networks and that kind of thing, it seemed like it really resonated with a lot of other folks, too. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, what what does it look like to sort out that confusion in our souls, you Mm -hmm. know? So being there for others, but also sorting through, well, how are we supposed to, uh, Deal with all those weird um, weird positions that our, our minds are being forced to to sort out if you've tried to cultivate some sort of life of of being there for others.
2: yeah, I think it's really hard. I think that there's so much that we have lost right now and the ways that we can support one another. Um, and i I think we just have to name that and grieve it and know that it's real. Um, but I I do think there's so many amazing places that creativity and community are happening right now, and it's pretty incredible to watch um, the mutual care and aid networks that people have created, and checking on elders and immune-compromised folks, and delivering groceries and supporting striking workers. Um, I think people have figured out new ways of doing that work um, to be able to social distance and still figure out ways to to love one another, Um, I think it's pretty remarkable. Um, And I think, you know, even just sort of what I see sort of happening in my own neighborhood, um, we decided pretty early on that we were gonna come outside every day at five o'clock just to say hello and remember that we're not alone. Um, And it's been amazing that we stand on the corner every day, six feet apart from one another um, and every day, there's a, a really big crew of folks. Um, and I think especially for my kids, that that's what's getting them through. Um, they they both have said, like, can we continue this after the coronavirus has passed? Um, and they're spending all of this time with neighbors and, and even other kids in our neighborhood that we didn't spend a lot of time with before. Um, you know, last week we all brought our own treats outside and we had a one-year-old birthday party and we sang happy birthday 10 different ways. Um, and yesterday my four-year-old learned how to ride a two-wheeler and he had 20 neighbors standing outside cheering him on. And we've started a fund to support neighbors financially, and we're exercising on Mondays at noon and singing together on Sunday evenings and um, we're planning on sharing one recipe a week um, for immune boosting herbal medicines that we can make in our own kitchens or with plants that we can gather in our yards. And we're gonna keep making medicines and delivering them to neighbors who need them. Um, and I, I have no doubt that when the time comes, we'll also find ways to grieve with one another, um, even if from a distance. So, um, I think, a, a lot about uh, Grace Boggs, who's a Detroit ancestor, who said that these are the times to grow our souls, and I think that that is the time that we're in, and I think that that's exactly what we're doing, um, and that there's so many stories like this in every corner of the world, and we we really need to keep gathering them and sharing them with one another.
1: Uh, thanks. That's a really fantastic sentiment, and probably a great note to end on, actually. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And uh, we love G's and we're so excited to talk to you about it.
2: Thank you. We love you and are so grateful for your work. And we'll have to figure out ways to keep keep collaborating.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, if you don't have a subscription to G's, you should get one. Uh, Lydia, what's the best way for someone to subscribe to or support G's or find uh, ways to contribute to it, et cetera?
2: Yeah, you can go to gsmagazine.org. Um and hit subscribe, and you can either become a, a five dollars a month monthly donor or a subscription is thirty nine dollars a year. Um, same price whether you're in Canada or the u s. Um, and we're also, you know we're really mindful that this is a really hard time to ask people to subscribe, that people are hit really um, hard financially in a lot of ways. Um, so it's one of the things we've been thinking about is how do you how do you send renewal notices right now? Um, when subscriptions and monthly donations are probably the first thing that that go Um, so we want to support that and not have put people in that pressure but also think that these stories are really important right now Um, so we're figuring out ways to to keep people on for a little bit longer even if they don't subscribe and if you know money is something that gets in the way of a subscription right now let us know and we want to figure out how to keep people in community and and getting these, getting these words either way.
0: That's great. Uh, well, geezmagazine.org. go there, get the magazine if you can. And if you can't, um, send Lydia an email, I guess. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Thanks so much again, Lydia. And, uh, let us know how the parenting book is going and I'm sure we'll talk to you before that comes out.
2: Sounds great. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you like G's, if you like it, oh, G's, if you like this, you could get more G's at uh, G'sMagazine.org. <laughs> uh, again, just uh, go there and subscribe, and it's fantastic. You won't regret it even one bit. Um, cool uh, as usual our music is by church Amari Armstrong our outro church music is by The Logical Spoon and we'll fly. see you next week heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson
0: keep your hoods up, well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson,
1: you keep your hoods up, where well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind the cold night, but we might mind.